I'm Lindsay Morgan, and you're listening to Talking Policy. If you're an average American, like I am, you may have heard or read headlines, especially in the last few years, suggesting that American democracy, this bedrock notion and system of government, is faltering, struggling, that things we've taken for granted about the system we are a part of might be unraveling. Is democracy as a system of government, as a social principle, under threat? 70% of the global population now lives either in non-democratic countries or in countries that are technically still democracies, but are backsliding, sometimes significantly. Talking Policy's series on the future of democracy has looked at this issue from the level of governments, leaders, geopolitics. We've looked at big issues like migration, the role of the media, the effect of the pandemic. We wanted to close out the spring lineup by looking at the issue from a different angle, which is the angle of ordinary people. How do people respond when their democracy is under threat? How should you and I respond? Sarah Wallace Goodman, a member of IGCC's Future of Democracy Initiative and a professor of political science at UC Irvine, has done a lot of work and a lot of thinking about these questions, and she's here to talk with us today. Sarah, welcome to Talking Policy. Thank you for having me. So in your book, Citizenship in Hard Times, How Ordinary People Respond to Democratic Threat, you look at how partisanship shapes how citizens respond to threats. And you're looking especially at experience in three countries, the U.S., U.K., and Germany. As the title of your book makes clear, you're looking at this from the perspective of ordinary people, but you're focusing on an idea, which is citizenship. And one of the core arguments of your book is that citizenship is a foundation of stable democracy and that it binds people together behind common goals and gives the government legitimacy in governing to advance those goals. Citizenship is one of these concepts that seems important, but we don't really think that much about it most of the time. So what is citizenship? And specifically, what is citizenship in a democracy? So citizenship, on the one hand, is our identity. It is the thing that attaches us to the political system. So sometimes people think about their citizenship as a passport. If, however, you were sort of born, in this case, a U.S. citizen, you're right. It's something we don't think about a lot. We maybe rarely think about it. It may be something that we only think about when it's election day. So, you know, on the one hand, it's a passport, it's a status, but it's also an identity. And with that, it's a set of norms. It's sort of the expectations that we have about our role in politics. Because citizens aren't just like this passive recipient of what happens, right? We, we, we exist in the system too. We legitimize it, as you said. So like these expectations that we have about who we are, what we do, what values we maintain, that's an important part of kind of the democratic story. Well, so in the context of American democracy, I mean, what are some of those values? What are the things that we are supposed to believe? What are the things that we're supposed to do? In my book, I asked 14 different items. The list started with like 35 different items. So, you know, there's, everyone might maintain kind of the, these different definitions of what it means to be a good citizen, right? So in the U.S. context, for example, maybe you think being a good citizen means buying ethical products. 
maybe you think being a good citizen is signing up to serve in the military, right? So like you can imagine all sorts of different definitions, but like the key I argue is that like there are these sufficient overlaps that we sort of have some common understanding of our obligation. And so among the items that I ask about are like some behaviors, does a good citizen vote? Does a good citizen keep watch on government, right? So kind of like stay informed about what's happening. Does a good citizen join associations, right? So, or protest, so like there's some behaviors in there. Um, and there's some values, right? So we're a liberal democracy. So we want citizens to adhere to some values of liberalism. So does a good citizen think, you know, it's important to respect the opinions of people, even if you don't agree with them, right? So value the marketplace of ideas. Um, is it important to, you know, maintain friendships when you disagree? So it's about these social connections or have patience with people who you disagree with or accept diversity, right? So these kind of values that we associate with pluralism and tolerance. And then there's like a third set of expectations about what might make a good citizen, which are about national belonging. So this sort of taps into national identity, which can be a, a subcomponent of citizenship norms, which is like, do you speak English? Do you feel American? Are you patriotic? Right. Those kinds of dimensions, right? They're, they're more um, immutable in a sense compared to the other sets of values. But when you ask Americans, you know, some people agree with some, not with others, but you do see that there are these sufficient overlaps in behavior and liberal values, right? And that's kind of an important part of the story for establishing a foundation of, of shared goals. In reading the description of what citizenship means, what it means to be part of like a liberal democracy in the first few chapters of your book, you were describing these aspirations and foundations in terms of value, shared values of democracy and citizenship. And it was beautiful to read and it was exciting to think about. But my first reaction was, man, does anybody really think about citizenship in this thoughtful or expansive way? I mean, I'm not sitting around reading Aristotle. I don't know that many people are. And I mean, we know that in the three countries that are the subject of your book, the US, the UK and Germany, in all three, Voters in recent years have have voted for parties or they have voted for candidates that are unsupportive of at least some of the key tenets of liberal democracies. What are the discrepancies, I suppose, between this idea of citizenship, democracy, and a social compact, expectations about what you're supposed to do in a democracy and what the government is supposed to do for you, the ideal, and then what is actually happening in the messy real world that we all live in? You're right. We're not all sitting, myself included, sitting around reading Aristotle. One of the things for me was, to, I guess, to try and make these items less academic in a sense and think about what are the values that people might actually hold without connecting them directly to, say, liberalism or, you know, if you're not reading Hobbes, right? I don't think people think about civility, but I think people think about their friends and like oh, their uncle who just has these crazy views and he's coming for dinner and I'm just, I'm going to be polite or I'm going to not be polite and call them out. And so like those kind of behaviors really represent these kinds of values, even if we don't sort of ask about them directly, right? So now there are democracies that don't have Democrats, lowercase d, right? So not talking about Democrats, the political party, but people that believe in or value democracy as a regime type. That 
is the case. And that is always the case, right? There are always people within systems that do not agree with or comply or, I mean, January 6th is really the perfect example, right? And I think a lot of people woke up to the notion that you can have democracy without Democrats on that day. What do you do about that? Well, we accept that by living in a liberal democracy, that you know, in a liberal space, in a marketplace of ideas, that these ideas exist, right? Illiberal ideas exist within a liberal space. We can either you know, identify the reasons why that is, and that's an important role that researchers play. We can identify who the thought leaders are, who may direct these you know, ideas, and that is an important role that elites can play. And we can you know, maintain some of these values that we have as citizens that could possibly turn the temperature down, right? Or, you know, mollify the situation. You think about that crazy uncle and how he got there in the first place. There are kind of behaviors that you and I could do or just like practices that we can have that don't exacerbate a problem. But, you know, we recognize that non-democratic values kind of exist within the democracy. And so pragmatically, our choices are either to ignore them or sort of confront them. How do norms of citizenship vary across countries? It was really important for me to look at the U.S. in comparative perspective, because on the one hand, our problems feel acutely unique here. On the other hand, we are not the only country to experience democratic backsliding. One of the democratic threats I look at is foreign interference in election, and we are hardly the only country to have been subjected to sort of this kind of interference from Russia. We would expect democratic values to be kind of broadly popular in democracies, right? So on the one hand, we should expect that like citizens in the UK have similar liberal democratic values as citizens in the US. On the other hand, we might also expect some differences when it comes to national belonging. And right, because these have different citizenship traditions, different understandings of, you know, civic versus ethnic concepts of national belonging. So we could expect differences there. And that's what we see. We see that, you know, broadly in the U.S., the U.K. and Germany, citizens exhibit really similar values when it comes to the behaviors that they expect of citizens, the values they expect citizens to have, and some differences when it comes to items of national belonging. So for instance, like in the UK and in Germany, you see that patriotism is a really low fa- low rated factor. It's like, and, and sort of we understand the historical reasons why that is the case, but you know, that is not a strong dimension of being a good citizen is to be patriotic or proud of your country. Whereas it is one of the strongest and widely shared items in the United States. Conversely, in the UK, in Germany, speaking the national language is a very strong component of being a good citizen. Whereas in the US, that is a much more moderately rated item. I just want to ask you for our listeners, can you share like in a nutshell, I mean, you've done so much thinking about this. Like remind us, what is the social contract? What is this idea? And why is it good? A social contract it's kind of this implicit agreement among members of society to cooperate. You know, essentially we we give up a degree of freedom and in exchange for that, we can cooperate on things and we have certain protections. So we have a social contract among each other and we also enter into a contract with the state. 
This is Hobbes' understanding of it. We give up of certain liberties, certain freedoms in exchange for certain rights and protections. That's a kind of relationship that's established between a polity, between sort of a state, a political organization, and an individual. We can also then think of citizenship as kind of the an institutionalized reflection of that, where the individual, the citizen, owes duties to the state and receives rights in exchange. Conversely, the state also has a duty to the citizens and has certain rights that they get from the individual. So like the state gets legitimation, the citizen gets rights, the state has to provide things, the citizens have to what? Give loyalty, maybe service, maybe uh, maintain rule of law, right? So it is, this is Charles Tilley's definition, it is transactional. Both sides get and give. So the second core argument of your book is that when citizens respond to democratic threats in a partisan way, according to what whatever they think will benefit their side, that this threatens democracy itself. So it becomes one of the many factors we can talk about that are threatening or eroding democracy. So this really kind of implicates all of us and suggests that, you know, we can be part of the solution and we can be part of the problem. The overall question is, how do people respond to threats to democracy? How do Americans and Brits and Germans respond in your research? But I'm also curious, like, how do they even know there's a threat? Do they understand that there's a threat equally? I'm assuming that is not the case. No, that's a great question. There's always threats, right? In every age, there's threats to democracy, right? And so if it wasn't the Soviets, then it was like the decline of participation. And then it was, so there's always been some sort of threat to democratic health or democratic quality. The argument you would make today is like the threats are more existential, right? In terms of the rules themselves, just like how we don't think about our citizenship. We also don't really think about our regime unless we seek out information, right? We don't kind of live in these information systems. Most of the time we're barbers and we, you know, we're sanitation workers or we're elementary school teachers, right? We're not living in this informational ecosystem all the time. So unless we sort of purposely seek out this information, which a small percentage of people do, right? We have to receive the information, right? And so I give the example, you know, the, the, that Chinese balloon a couple months ago, right? So it's like, here's a problem, here's a thing, here's a thing. I don't know what this thing is. How do I understand what it is and whether or not I should be worried about it, right? So citizens rely on elites to give us information about these things, right? They frame it for us in a way that is either it's threatening or it isn't. So this is why Again, the citizen elite story, it's mutually constitutive. They rely on one another. And so here we see citizens, they have to rely on elites to frame it in a threatening way to understand it as threatening. Now, the the reason that the book looks at partisanship as opposed to kind of other cleavages, because you can imagine that like women think differently than men or um, you think differently based on religion or your economic class, right? All these cleavages could be a reason that you could be threatened by something or not. But the reason I look at partisanship is because we observe partisans packaging these kinds of threats to democracy in different ways. So if you think about the contemporary threats to democracy, the real core problem is not just that citizens respond differently to these threats, 
but that you know some people don't view them as threats at all. So we have to have a mutually agreed upon understanding of what a threat is in order to observe kind of a unified response to threat. And so what I do, what I observe in the book though is that you know partisans respond really differently in sort of these divided societies where you have sort of deep polarization. So Democrats are responding to threat differently than Republicans and you know supporters of you know Brexit are responding differently than supporters of Remain. Tell me about those cleavages here in the US. I we're all accustomed, maybe whether we are inundated in news or even if we're not, to a sense at least that there is a widening or deepening polarization happening in this country. Talk us through how that's been playing out over the last few years. So what I do in the book is I don't just look at citizens and their different partisanships, but the context in which those partisanships play out. So in the U.S., the thing that makes it really unique is that we have this zero-sum system because we only have two parties. So every win for one side is a loss for the other. And so because the stakes are so high and there's only winners and losers, in this context, you see that people understand and respond to threat as either benefiting their side or not. So what you observe is in response to electoral interference, in response to the problem of polarization, that people who are challenging the status quo, so in this case, when the when the work was fielded, it was Democrats, that they responded, they mobilized in a way to the problem where Republicans, because they were status quo holders, didn't really move. And, you know, I explain that as, you know, they don't have incentive to move. Because they were in power. Exactly. So it's not just the values, and we show that the values are broadly overlapping between these two groups, but it's the system in which you know, incentives are presented that sort of present the stakes of responding. Tell us more about the type of electoral system that the U.S. has and how that compares to the U.K. and Germany, of course, where they have many parties. Talk us through why these majoritarian systems give politicians an incentive to polarize the public. Like, how exactly does that work? What are the mechanics of that? Political science has very few laws, unlike some other disciplines. But one of the laws that we have is Duverger's law. And it tells us that when you have, they're called first past the post electoral systems, plurality electoral systems, where the most votes wins, right? You don't need the majority, you just need the most votes, right? When you have those kinds of political systems, it yields two parties. It's not always true. Even the case that he used to develop this law, which was the UK, has more than two parties. But like, so this is this is an idea. But we sort of largely observe it. And you might kind of notice it's like when you think about voting for Congress, what are the benefits of voting for a third party? Those votes will be wasted. The incentives are then to vote for one party or the other. And then parties move strategically recognizing that. And so then we've created this sort of stable system where we have two parties. The way that we vote produces that outcome which is really unlike how voting happens in Germany, right? Which sort of combines, they have like a two ballot. It's extremely confusing and my poor students have to sit through it and it involves something called overhang seats. But the point is they combine the sort of first past the post with a proportional representation where you can choose part different parties and those parties get a proportion of the vote. So you see less wasted votes. So you see more actors 
in the parliament, right, in the Bundestag. So what that does is, in wasting less votes, is it represents more values. It allows for more um, minority opinions to have a seat at the table. By minority opinions, I mean like the Green Party, parties that represent maybe regions or more specialized sets of values. It lowers the stakes, right, because you need different coalitions, not just to govern, but to reach consensus and agreement. And so just by building in that sort of structure, you're getting more dialogue, you're lowering the stakes of some of these decisions. Not every vote is the bitter end. And then the UK is like middle ground between the two, because you have on the one sense, you have a two party system. On the other hand, you have significant regional parties now due to things like devolution and, and also like the evolution of subnational politics in a way that, you know, the SNP, while a very small party in Westminster, has significant political power both in the region and as like a agenda setter. In your book, you're making a claim that when ordinary people like us respond to democratic threats in a partisan way, that this is in itself a threat to democracy. So there's there's an urgency to your book, to what you're saying here. What's happening then? Why the urgency? Why the red flag? What are you observing happening in the U.S.? Like, what is at stake? What is the threat that the citizens are posing in their behavior? Like, explain it to us. The key problem is that democratic threat is a regime-level threat. It threatens the rules that affect everyone. They don't just affect one political group versus another. They don't just affect Democrats. They sh- they also ref- you know affect Republicans in the U.S. Right when democracy is under threat, it threatens everyone because as a set of rules, we have to recognize or we hope that there's lots of iterations. Right, that we have lots of elections, and we want to make sure that this election is right and proper and conducted fairly. So that we have confidence that the next one will be, right? Maybe you win this time, maybe I win next time. So these democratic threats affect everyone. But when they're only viewed as problems by the losers, by the people that didn't win that election, or when they are ignored by the people that benefited from that outcome, regardless of fairness, right? That just tips the scales and it makes the problem itself partisan. If you think as democracy is sort of the top level set of values that bind us all together. When you see a threat and it is downgraded to something that affects a certain set of partisans, right? it's no longer seen as a mutual threat. And so you no longer expect mutual responses. I mean, you think about Liz Cheney and how brave that decision was for her to sort of just acknowledge that "Mm, this is a violation of our democratic principles. Like that shouldn't be a partisan issue at all, right? So that's the real urgency is that we now have two truths about whether an election was fair or whether the vote of 2020 was legitimate or not, right? I mean, you can sort of go on and list all these issues, right? Whether January 6th was an insurrection or not. You know, Rick DeSantis, for instance, said, you know, he was thinking about pardoning people convicted for January 6th insurrection. You have now kind of from one leader to a next sort of entrenched a concept that like this is partisan. The the Democratic threat is only threatening if you're a Democrat. That's a real red flag territory. Has it gotten more difficult to talk about this, to share your results, to find reception 
outside the academy, among funders of your research, given that insofar as there is a clear community that does not believe there are threats that that is a Republican problem more than it is a Democratic problem. It's definitely affected the kind of language I use, the examples I draw on. And, you know, I think a lot of times about the examples I use in class. They've been socialized into supporting, you know, a certain party, but they haven't learned yet about partisanship as a social identity or the determinants of part, right? So, you know, my job is there to talk about, to define what a democratic threat is in a way that it's their first time learning about it. In class, you have the chance to have that conversation. When you're talking to potential donors, when you're talking to interested parties or general audiences, you don't have that context. So you just have to be extremely careful about the examples that you use with, you know, not taking for granted that they understand that you're using an illustration of Ron DeSantis, not as in a partisan context, but as an, you know, a democratic threat context, right? But when you focus on democratic threat, it looks imbalanced because not both parties are committing threats against democracy. That's the core issue, problem, challenge to overcome. The work that Democrats have to do is different than the work that Republicans have to do. And the work that Republicans have to do has to start with acknowledging the complicity in producing democratic threats or allowing democratic threats to go unchecked. So your your core arguments, just to restate them, are that citizenship, democratic citizenship is a foundation of democratic stability and partisan citizen responses to threats to democracy, some of which we have seen in our own country, like attempts to prevent people from voting attempts to weaken the judiciary, that this in itself, this citizen response in itself is also a threat to democracy. How well does this argument explain what's happening in other countries? Because we know that democratic backsliding, as academics call it, is not a phenomenon that is reserved you know, for just a small handful of countries. It is happening all over the world. We can look, of course, at Turkey, India, Hungary, Israel, Zambia, Venezuela. I mean, you look all over the globe. How well does what you're saying translate to these other contexts? I think very well, because what happens in this sort of mutual exchange between what elites are saying and what citizens allow them to get away with, right? I mean, that's the way in which they mutually constitute one another. We don't see citizens pushing back within party, right? So take Israel, for example, you've had unprecedented mobilization. Every Saturday night, you're seeing protests in Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, other major cities in the tens of thousands up to hundreds of thousands, right? Because of Netanyahu's threat to, you know, undermine judicial independence, right? Those protests are coming from outside his party, right? You don't have people within his party defending the institutions of democracy. So the the protests look partisan and they are happening at that higher level about values of democracy. And again, like, so Israel is a multi-party system, PR. So it looks a lot like the way that I talk about Germany in the book institutionally, but because you have this selective interpretation of what is or is not a threat to democracy, you have this group splintering, right? And so now this is a really sort of existential moment for the democracy 
And it kind of remains to be seen whether Netanyahu will give in to these very significant social pressures coming from outside his party. We're obviously living in a, you know, 150 mile an hour world with cascading crises and conflicts and wars and protests and... Well, when you put it that way. Climate change doom. All of this has wreaked havoc, I think, on our ethical concepts that shape kind of how we live in society. It's made it hard to trust each other. And your book, again, is is so interesting because it's talking to all of us and it implicates all of us. And it reminds us that there is something called like social responsibility, like civic responsibility, and that we live in a context where we are in a relationship with each other and with the government, that there are expectations here. And there's a lot of possibility. You know, in your book, you're trying to describe things as they are, I think, in the hopes that if we if we know what's wrong with us, we can do something to change it. And again, it's it's really directed at ordinary people. These are our listeners. What would you say to them? When I was writing the conclusion and I said to myself, well, how do we get out of this problem? I don't have the ability to shake Republican elites and, t- and ask them to just like see the world as it is and depict it to partisans as it is, right? As much as I wish I could do that, right? So if on the one hand, we can't move elites, we have to move citizens. And so I think about the solution is extremely micro level. For me, it's reminding myself that while I have family members that voted for Trump, I still have connections and meaningful ties to these people, which should be preserved even if we can't talk about certain issues, right? Those ties are meaningful. We are complicated individuals with lots of identities. And I try not to essentialize our differences to this one choice. And that is hard work. And I think that remembering that there are commonalities and meaningful ties between neighbor and neighbor is really it's part of the story. It's not the whole story. It's not the total solution, but it's part of it. It's keeping meaningful ties because you know, we overlap in other things. It is possible, and this is stuff we learned from you know the social capital literature, that if we maintain these ties, that maybe we can call on other attributes at other key moments. That's sort of like my best attempt at a silver lining in what you describe as this total hellscape post-apocalypse <laughs> where we live in and I'm clinging to that. Yes, yes, yes. No, it's so easy to make caricatures out of each other, but that is not actually the truth either. Sarah Wallace Goodman, the book is Citizenship in Hard Times, How Ordinary People Respond to Democratic Threat. Thank you for being with us on Talking Policy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week. 